afternoon and welcome to the 112th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with the diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we will talk about the wildfires and hurricanes underway right now in the context of COVID-19 with Jennifer Lazo and Caitlin Bain. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests, future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 25th, 2020, there are 23,736,101 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, that's up from 23,513,905 cases reported yesterday. Of those, 5,764,304 are in the United States. That's up from 5,723,181 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 178,065 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 176,991 reported yesterday. At this time, another day with more than 1,000 deaths day to day. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. I'd like to continue that now. This is a news story that appeared in the New York Times, August 20th, headline as Wildfires Rage, Californians Fear the Virus at Shelters by Kellen Browning. Santa Cruz, California, a wildfire was raging outside, but inside the evacuation centers, there were risks too. Natalie Lyons and Craig Phillips had to make a decision Thursday morning as they sat in their ash-coated Toyota Tundra under the smoky orange sky in Santa Cruz. After fleeing the small town of Felton on Wednesday, as a series of wildfires continued to burn along the central coast of California, they sought refuge at the Santa Cruz Civic Auditorium an evacuation site but the building was full and Ms. Lyons was scared of contracting the coronavirus in an enclosed indoor space. There's some people coughing, their masks are hanging down, said Ms. Lyons, 54, who said she had lung problems. I'd rather sleep in my car than end up in a hospital bed. So that is exactly what the couple did. Their car served as a makeshift bed across the street from the auditorium and Ms. Lyons tried to get comfortable in the back seat with her Chihuahua Terrier mix and shell-shocked cat. I hardly got any sleep, she said. More than 25,000 people have been forced to evacuate. This is as of uh, the 20th of August. More than 25,000 people have been forced to evacuate from the rural areas of San Mateo and Santa Cruz counties, Cal Fire said, and many have struggled to find a place to go, especially with the pandemic still limiting indoor gatherings. At least five hotels in Santa Cruz said they were filled to capacity on Wednesday night, as evacuees sought refuge from the smoke outside. And midday Thursday, Santa Cruz County urged tourists and other visitors to leave so displaced residents could find a bed to sleep in. Even places set up specifically to house evacuees 
are forced to turn people away because of the need for social distancing, which Jesse Bond, the Civic Auditorium supervisor, called heartbreaking. There's really two emergencies happening and we need to address both, she said. The fires have killed at least four people. As of last week, three bodies were recovered on Thursday from a house that burned down in Napa County. Henry Wofford, a spokesman for the sheriff's office, said. In Solano County, a man who lived on Pleasance Valley Road was found dead during a damage assessment, Sheriff Tom Ferrara said on Facebook. The Central Coast fires in Santa Cruz and San Mateo counties called the CZU August Lightning Complex severely damaged California's oldest state park, Big Basin Redwoods. The Santa Cruz County Sheriff's Office has ordered nearly 28,000 people to leave their homes because of the fire, which swelled to about 40,000 acres on Thursday and remains completely uncontrolled. The University of California Santa Cruz campus was placed under a mandatory evacuation on Thursday night, hours after university officials urged anyone on campus to leave voluntarily. At least two other people have died in the firefighting effort, a helicopter pilot on a water dropping mission who was killed in a crash in Fresno County and a worker for Pacific Gas and Electric who had been clearing electrical lines and was found unresponsive in his vehicle in Solano County. In Santa Cruz, about 40 people were sheltering inside the Civic Auditorium. Those who were permitted to stay used tents that were spaced throughout the auditorium, a far cry from the dense array of cots that dotted the floor when the building was used as a shelter after the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989. I'm not sure if tent fabric is preventive against COVID, this bond said, but again, just giving people that barrier, that kind of more shelter in place type situation, rather than in being in back-to-back cots. At the Santa Cruz County Fairgrounds in Watsonville, another evacuation site, RV owners set up camp in parking lots while others slept in their cars or pitched tents on glass on grass fields amid the smoke. Rachel Munoz said that she her husband and two children took a chance and slept in a tent inside a fairground building after evacuating the town of Ben Lamond. If I get COVID, it's probably going to be here, she said, but there was not much room to sleep in her pickup truck, which was already occupied by 16 chickens and the pine shavings they nest in. These are my babies, said Miss Munoz, 51, while rigging netting to the back of her truck so she could leave the door open and give her hens some fresh air. Back in Santa Cruz, Miss Lyons and Mr. Phillips, her boyfriend, were planning their next move. Mr. Phillips, 65, called one hotel after another as far away as Monterey, but they all said the same thing. Sorry, we're full. He packed his guitars, and she brought pet supplies and DVDs of her daughter's childhood. The couple said they will be living out of their cars for the foreseeable future. Mr. Phillips, who retired from his job with the Bay Area Air Quality Agency in April, said the past few months have been far from the easy life he had hoped for. I retired into the pandemic and now homelessness, he said. Okay, let's turn to our discussion for today. And I think it's gonna be a really good one I want to, before I start the introductions, Jennifer, I want to make sure I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. Is it Lazo or Lazo? Lazo, actually. Lazo, okay. Thank you very much for that clarification. Um, let me introduce her then. Jennifer Lazo is an emergency management coordinator with the City of Los Angeles Emergency Management Department. She manages the city's emergency alert and warning program, GIS program, and is the Area H Disaster Management Area Coordinator. 
as a responder in Los Angeles's Emergency Operations Center, the EOC, she has staffed a variety of positions during disasters, including the Saddle Ridge Fire, Getty Fire, COVID-19 pandemic, and the protests for racial justice this year in May and June. She is a certified emergency manager with the International Association of Emergency Managers and is the vice chair of that organization's Emerging Technology Committee. In 2013, she received her master's degree in disaster science and management at the University of Delaware, where she also worked as a graduate research assistant in the Disaster Research Center, well known to listeners of COVID calls. Jennifer, Jennifer's master's thesis was titled Framing Disaster Planning for People with Disabilities. My second guest is Caitlin Bain. Caitlin has been on COVID calls before, and I'm so thrilled to bring her back to the discussion today. She's the government and politics reporter with the Beaumont Enterprise, the largest daily newspaper in Southeast Texas. She covers at varying levels county and city governments across five counties in Southeast Texas, in addition to working with other reporters on environmental and other related coverage. Caitlin was born and raised in the Houston area, so she's familiar with hurricanes and related preparations, although she's only been reporting in Beaumont for just under two years. However, in that time, she's covered a major flooding event, the largest petrochemical plant explosion the region has seen in decades, and like most other journalists lately, she's covering the coronavirus pandemic. So Jennifer and Caitlin, thanks for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. Glad to be here. My pleasure. Let me remind everybody that you can get your uh, questions in, just put them into the YouTube live comments, or you can email them to me directly if you need to, sgk23 at drexel.edu, or you can put them up on Twitter and just be sure to tag at US of Disaster. So let's jump right into the conversation. Um, this is uh, extraordinary. We had calls with people uh, in the late spring talking about what would happen, what ifs about compound disasters if hurricanes and wildfires um, and COVID-19 intersected. And now we're having a discussion in the, in the midst of this. So let me start the way I usually do, I'd like to find out where you're calling in from right now and, and what the COVID-19 situation is there. And then also, if there's a wildfire or hurricane situation where you are, tell us about that too. Jennifer, can I start with you? Absolutely. So hi, everyone. I am in the city of Los Angeles's EOC. I'm actually in the mayor's conference room right now, so nobody tell him. Uh, but it has an excellent view out onto the EOC floor, which you can see behind me. Um, and regarding COVID-19, right now, the city of LA and the county of LA have plateaued a little bit. We are no longer raising, rising in cases the way that we were in July. Um, LA has had a really consistently large number of cases, but not necessarily a ton of growth over period of time. So we had big growth in June, July, we've plateaued again. We're not getting down to not having a ton of cases. We still have several thousand a day in the city or county, um, but we're no longer rising. So we're taking a little bit of a breath, a tiny bit of a breath at this point, but still definitely very much on guard and very much locked down. We still, no indoor dining, no haircuts, uh, none of that stuff at this point. We're in a very, very much a locked down stage. Um, regarding wildfires and extreme heat, um, it's been a very rough last two weeks for the entire state of California. We had some of the most extreme heat we have had in 
decades, honestly, um, for a much more prolonged time than we're used to. It got 100 to 107 at my house uh, with humidity, which we're also very much not used to. Uh, we leave the humidity to those folks down in Texas and Florida. We really don't like it. We don't know what to do with it. So it meant that we had some major issues with extreme heat, needing to open cooling centers. Uh, we had fires that made that as the fires burned, they grew rapidly and they had these incredible pyrocumulus clouds that would form above them. Uh, they were just massive and terrifying to look at. And then we would also have, uh, and so we had these massively growing wildfires, but they weren't wind driven. That was what was just so different for us. We are used to having really bad fires in late September, October, and those are generally wind driven. These were massive fires triggered by lightning, lightning with no rain, tragically, um, which is really not a particularly normal fire start for us. So that we are starting a season in, in August, which happens sometimes, but usually our most catastrophic fires are actually still a couple of months, about a month away. So uh, it was quite a start and the entire state is choking on smoke at this point in time too. So that's another major hazard, no matter whether or not you have a fire right here or further away. So here in LA city, we've been pretty lucky, uh, no major fires burning in city boundaries yet. The county has had fires and the state has had fires and we're keeping a close eye on them and we have been doing a lot with the extreme heat. Just as we're getting context here, I wanted to ask you a couple things. Is there a situation in which Los Angeles County would be asked to provide aid to counties in Northern California? So the county and the city, I'm with the city, not with okay. the county, um, but yeah, we have LAFD crews from and LA County fire crews up in the Santa Cruz area responding, sending crews. They've also been responding to the couple of fires up here. One is almost completely contained. I think I saw 93% today. And then the other one is getting better, the Lake Fire. Um, so our two here are in reasonably good shape. I think they've released all of the evacuation orders, but up north in the Santa Cruz area, Sonoma, Napa, those fires are still burning quite a bit. Although we had a bit of a break of the weather. It is now in the 90s instead of being in the 100s. And it looks like for a little bit, we're good on our thunderstorms. So they had a scary couple of weekends um, with thunderstorms on both of those. The other thing I wanted to ask you, Jennifer, is this is the first time we've actually had a guest. We've had emergency managers, but we had not had anyone who talked to us from inside the emergency operations center. Um, I know you can't walk us around and give us a full tour, but can you just tell us a little bit of what we're seeing in the background there? Yeah. So this is our main coordination floor behind me. You can see the big video wall where we've got a dashboard using our EOC software, a bunch of monitoring things. And my personal favorite thing, which probably isn't actually readable from this thing, is the slide that tells us what day of the week it is, uh, what the date is, and how many days we've been here. <laughs> so right now it's got the day of the week and the fact that we have been 131 days at level one activation, which has never happened before in the city of LA's history. So we are still technically a level one you'll you'll see not every seat behind me is filled uh that's very purposeful uh we are a level one with many of the seats being virtual um and we've actually it may not be clear we've literally removed every other chair um from around the pods so that people can't sit next to each other uh it made us very happy because a lot of people were able to sort of steal a second monitor for their position now that we're not using every computer uh which made people thrilled um, we've got all sorts of social distancing practices. I've got 
my mask ready to go as soon as I walk out of here and everybody behind me will be happening. We'll have them. But um, so far we're doing, we've been having people here physically in person the entire time of the COC activation with some people also responding virtually. So, and just to clarify one thing, because maybe not everybody's too familiar, the, there will always be people in and around an emergency operations center, but it's not, it's a formal status of activation, right? Absolutely. So the levels are three to one. Three is a small one. It's really just people from the emergency management department, which is the department I'm part of. Um, when we get to level two, that's actually the traditional level. A lot of our larger incidents have been at wildfires, stuff like that. Um, and then this level one, we haven't really reached something that's the equivalent of this levels, honestly, since the Northridge earthquake. And we didn't have right. that terminology for it then. So this has been a really unusual situation for us. Northridge was 94? Yeah. Okay. Wow. So this is a once a generation level Absolutely. of activation there. Thank you for taking us in, in so literally taking us inside that story there. And um, Caitlin, same to you. Where are you calling from? And what's the pandemic uh, looking like there now? And what's, what's on your radar, so to speak? Yeah. So I am calling in from my house. Um, so if my cats make an appearance, I apologize. Um, I've been working from my house since March 13th. Um, haven't stepped foot back in our office building. It was actually amusing on that day. We had a meeting about kind of settling back in and, and not being in emergency mode. And a few hours later, we were told to work from home and we haven't been back. So great, great timing for Southeast Texas. Um, I went back to pull some of the coronavirus numbers from when we talked last time and now. Um, I knew they had grown substantially, but didn't realize by how much. We talked May 14th, we had 430 cases across Jefferson County, um, increased by 1,069% to 5,029 cases as of yesterday. Um, on May 14th, our average uh, seven-day rolling case growth was at about 11 cases per day. We peaked with an average 120 cases per seven-day average on July 20th. We've come back down to about 36 per day, um, but our, our ICUs are still pretty full. Um, we're, we're still in it. Um, we also now are <laughs> expecting a hurricane, a type of hurricane that we haven't seen uh, in over a decade. Obviously, we are well known for Tropical Storm Harvey and the flooding that that caused. And we had a similar um, historic storm last year as well. It didn't get as much national media coverage, but caused a lot of flooding. This hurricane that we're expecting now will have kind of storm surge and wind more akin to storms that we had um, late 2000s, uh, Hurricanes Rita and Ike. So that's where we're at. Just to say a little bit more about what's been going on with, with COVID-19, I know last time we talked, um, you explained to us uh, some of the fascinating governmental things that had been going on there in terms of counties because mm -hmm. of, um, I don't know how you characterize it, but um, the, the, the leadership or, or 
quasi-leadership that was coming out of the state house, counties right. had banded together to come up with their own sort of plans. Is that still in effect for COVID or did that go away after a while and it was down to the city level? Yeah, it's back down to the city level. Um, we still have recently, within maybe all of my weeks are running together, within maybe the past three weeks, our county judge has started releasing every week or every day some statistics, how many new cases we have, uh, positivity rate, things like that, compiling the stats from our two cities. But that's been recent. Um, but yeah, it is mostly back to city control. Um, and then obviously the other counties in the area, we have some counties that their health departments are in charge of two counties, but it's back to health department level. And um, for people who are not aware, I mean, your coverage zone there is um, geographically pretty vast. Yeah. <laughs> and it also includes the greatest concentration of petrochemical facilities in the United States. It also includes um, middle-class communities, rural communities, and urban communities that have um, significant um, uh, problems with mm-hmm. uh, um, structural issues, environmental issues, racial issues. I'm talking about Port Arthur here. Um, The COVID story, covering that as a story, is like covering a hundred different stories in this place as complicated as as your coverage zone. Can you just give us a sense of, you know, these past few months since we talked to you last, how your view of the region might have changed or how your sort of like thinking as a reporter has, has changed, the kind of questions you ask have changed. I can't imagine how you've framed this disaster with all of the complexities that you have there. One of the things that has been fascinating to me, and it's been a little bit back now, but whenever we started to reopen a Memorial Day, um, Port Arthur, which you mentioned, um, it has a very large conver- com- oh, concentration of people of color. Um, But to that point, we hadn't seen the massive case growth that we have seen in other areas with large concentrations of people of color. And one thing that was brought up is when everything was closed, um, a lot of the Port Arthur people stayed in their area. They didn't mix with some of the other um, parts of our coverage area that may be, for whatever reason, likely has some political play in there, um, took less caution and and paid attention less to orders. So whenever we started to reopen, we saw this massive case growth in Port Arthur that we hadn't seen previously. Um, So that's been something interesting for me to cover about when communities do and don't mix. Um, It also has been interesting to me to watch our rural areas, which don't don't have the hospitals that we have in Jefferson County and how all five counties have to run under the understanding that not only will all coronavirus patients go to the hospitals in Jefferson County, but also gunshot victims and heart attack patients and Mm. who have been in car accidents and how the regional planning is so necessary because of all of the people that are being served by these few hospitals. Um, So those have been, as we've moved forward, some of the interesting storylines to follow and to dig deeper into. Could you, um, I don't put you on the spot, but it, it, if there's one story, one person or one community or something that you've covered in the last few months around COVID-19 that you think really kind of encapsulates the experience there, could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, goodness. Um, and you're cranking them out every day. It's not really a fair question. But. 
Well, and, and I have really become more familiar with how different the northern part of our coverage area, kind of Newton and Jasper County, is from mm. our lower area. Um, I really think watching the case growth and the adherence to orders based on political boundaries has been interesting to me. Um, hasn't been something I've written in depth about because it's something that's been covered nationally, but being able to watch and make a hypothesis and then see that happen just based on, well, this area votes in this specific way, this area votes in this specific way, and then seeing the case growth mimic national trends has been interesting. And just to stick with the stick with the local picture a little bit more around the petrochemical plants. Um, and I know last time we talked, we had your colleague Jacob Dick on, and I hope he's doing well. I'll say hello to him for for me if you would. Um, have they been any more forthcoming than they were not a few months ago about what's happening inside the inside the fence line? Not at all. Hmm. And because we have gotten to the point that we have so many cases, we have very little notification when there is a case at any business. I think the only notification we get at this point is whenever it's a school, which obviously is still public, but um, it's, about, it's about where it is. Okay. Let me, um, Jennifer, come back to, to you and, and get a little bit more fine-grained about what it's been like to be uh, doing your job in the midst of COVID, and we'll get more to fire. But, um, you know, you, I presume, have not done that job in the midst of a, certainly nothing like this, but maybe an epidemic outbreak of, of some sort? I mean, have you seen anything like that, an EOC activation from an epidemic outbreak in your time? So, yeah, I mean, I'm a reasonably young emergency manager, so saying that off the bat, um, I was actually, my first experience with anything nearing this would be with H1N1. It wasn't in an emergency management role, but it was in a startlingly useful role, which is that I was a camp nurse for a summer camp, the summer of H1N1. Um, and we had outbreaks for both sessions. We had at least 80 kids in our camp get it. It spread like wildfire. Uh, the thing I am most proud of is of our little camp nurse, camp medical staff. I was actually an EMT, not a real nurse, just to be clear, but essentially in that role, um, none of us ever got it, despite the fact that we were treating every single sick kid every single day. Um, so that sort of was pretty useful training ground, uh, honestly, of looking at how much it spreads amongst kids, how much you have to do preparation, and how you can take as many temperatures as you want in between sessions saying, okay, we've got all these new kids. We're going to take everyone's temperature. We're going to make them tell their case story. Um, and then we had one kid come in who the second day of camp in our second session gets sick. And we asked the kid, hey, is anyone in your family sick? Oh, yeah, my brother was sick, but my mom really wanted me to go to camp. It's like, okay, there you go. That's it. And they're off we were to the races again. Um, so that experience is helpful. And it actually, right after that, I started with the American Red Cross um, as an AmeriCorps member and helped with the vaccination clinics as the lowest of the person run, helping run the line of getting people in and out of the vaccination clinic. So I have done bits and pieces, but this EOC response is an entirely different thing. This is a massive logistics disaster which most of our disasters really aren't. A lot of the times the logistics will sort of sort themselves out, 
after a couple of days of crisis. Um, but this one has tested our logistic systems to the highest degree, and we've pretty much reformed them to make them actually work. And they're pretty darn effective now. So one of the sort of silent benefits of all of this is I think a lot of our systems, a lot of our training is getting used. People know what their jobs are now. They have been in the room. They know what they're doing. And we've been able to refine a lot of systems that we could only sort of write on every annual drill. Yeah, we still need to work on this prior to that. That doesn't work when you're activated for five months. It's fascinating that an epidemic was your or origin story for emergency management, uh, and that's that's an interesting connection to make. I wonder um, when you you mentioned the logistics breakdown. I think the picture that I have and many people have is the um, at the federal level and the mm -hmm. sort of halting discussions, if you want to call them that. I don't think there were many between Health and Human Services, and then when FEMA was sort of tasked. Um, with making sure that PPE and ventilators and various things were where they needed around the United States. Um, is that what you're talking, referencing here when we talk about logistics? Or there are other, must be many other challenges that are logistically oriented in a, a metropolis the size of Los Angeles? Absolutely. So it is everything from that, how we would have to go to the county, who would go to the region, who would go to the state, who would go to the feds. That's how we would enter into that. But our requests were in there from the start and we were pushing them all the way up to the state to get solved. And so as we go through the standardized emergency management system up the ladder, uh, we did find those challenges with logistical systems, um, getting the supplies, but some of it was just figuring it out within ourselves. Um, we've always talked about resource prioritization, who gets what, we had to make a lot of those decisions in the EOC. Um, and some of it's obvious, okay, the firefighters, the police officers, our paramedics, they need personal protective equipment as early as possible. But then we started having to say, well, our Department of Transportation people are actually helping run the transportation at the testing sites so people don't get run over while they're going through these testing sites. They need PPE too. They need that personal protective equipment. Um, our people who are working in the shelters, one of the things that LA did really early on is we did open uh, shelters for people experiencing homelessness. Uh, we have a hotel program as well, where a lot of people with, who are more medically vulnerable are located. But for people who were not necessarily as medically vulnerable, they did go into some of our traditional disaster shelter sites. Um, and one of this is another one of those things where we have gotten some experience in keeping those sites safe. So a lot of organizations didn't operate anything like that. We've been operating them since late March, early April. And so we've got some experience of doing them at 25% capacity, spreading everybody out, uh, keeping everyone safe. So getting those supplies to the workers from our recreation and parks division, you'd sort of say, how do you prioritize who needs an N95 mask? And it's not as simple as just give it to the paramedics and call it a day. So let's just take that in, in order. And thank you for that granular detail. So then you have um, protests for social justice mm -hmm. after the George Floyd murder. So now we're layering another disaster on top. Can you say a little bit about what new challenges that presented, either logistically or otherwise? Because the EOC is, is activated at that point, and now you've got another screen activated Absolutely. or multiple screens, I'm sure. Yeah, that was a pretty crazy couple of weeks for us. Um, it brought on the concept of having to run night shifts. Uh, which when we started this off, we were running 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. 
but we sort of moved it down to pretty much being the work day um, by the time we got to mid-May. So we were sort of in an operational tempo that was sustainable. And suddenly we were running an A shift and a B shift and going till 3 or 4 a.m. every night. We're a small department. We're a department of 29 people, the emergency management department here in the city of L.A. Um, and we have other people from other departments, the general services department, recreation and parks. Uh, first of all, we had to bring some people back in who hadn't been there the whole time. For example, our damage assessment uh, branch, they had not needed to assess any damage for all of COVID. They were doing great on the damage assessment side of things, but we did need them to come in and assess damage. So we needed to make sure they were able to come in safely, that their pod area had been set up safely um, and that we could do all of that. So there was definitely staffing challenges of filling those nighttime shifts during COVID when everyone's exhausted. Plus the curfew side makes it fun trying to get food to an emergency operation center operating overnight when there's a curfew in place and the food workers are told to go home. Um, there's a lot of cascading impacts there. So it was a challenge. The logistics side was actually a little bit easier there because the police department was able to do a lot of their own logistics for their own supplies. But again, looking at the wraparound services, we had major, major protests right outside of some of these shelter sites. Um, and we needed to make sure everybody was able to be safe and still participate in democracy as they wanted to, but was able to do it safely. And so it was trying to keep everyone in L.A. as safe as we could throughout that time um, and communicate effectively so everyone knew what was going on. It's interesting you say, you know, the damage assessment folks maybe hadn't had as much to do because the, the great catastrophe you're waiting for there is the big one, right? You're waiting for yeah. an earthquake. Yeah. And here you're, and here you have two major disasters, which are not that. Did you find the cross training had been useful? You talked, I think, very interestingly about sort of people learning their job, literally not their learning on the job, but the training that maybe they hadn't put to use. All of a sudden, they're like, "Oh, this is what the job is." Preparations for earthquake have been somehow applicable to COVID nineteen or the George Floyd protests. Absolutely, uh, I think the earthquake preparation and COVID-19 have been pretty strongly similar in the difficulty in getting resources in. Mm. That challenge has been a huge one that we've been dealing with and trying to solve it in any number of ways in the competition for resources. If we were to have a major earthquake here, LA City is a big city of 4 million people. We're in a much larger county in a much larger region, all of which would need the same things at the same time. So we're getting better at reaching within our city family. And when we had to set up a hospital site at the convention center, LAX, our local airport said, yeah, we have forklift you can borrow to help get that site set up, right? So getting better, we've always say we'll do it, but we're actually doing it, learning how to track, make sure that they get their forklift back, which it was just returned to them. They're very happy about having their forklift back. Uh, so it's some of those preparations that we did. Also, we do a lot of preparation um, regarding just looking at how this building will work, will function with people in it for a long time. And so we do have a hot EOC floor. It's always sitting like this. We don't have people who are using these desks on other days. And so it's sort of testing some of our equipment, testing some of our things. We're supposed to be able to be a self-contained body, but we've figured out a lot of those processes and procedures a lot more. Things that would take six months of committee meetings twice a month to decide, let's change from this format of our EOC action plan to that format of our EOC action plan happened in a week when we said, we can't do this anymore. This is a bad format. 
we've been through several EOC uh, software systems in the course of this activation. Wow, I, I want to see, um, Caitlin, I want to see how much of that, I'm thinking about the parallel worlds in a way of a newsroom and an, and an emergency operations center. Unfortunately, you have, your newsroom has been your, your apartment um, and you yep. haven't been back in the newsroom, but, but a couple of things to what Jennifer was saying. One, um, how were you covering the George Floyd protests? I guess what was happening there in that, in that region along those lines. And I guess following on what Jennifer has been saying also, what did you have to learn? What have you all learned by doing as a, as a group of reporters in these last few months? So maybe start with the, the protests. Yeah. So we didn't have as much response as a lot of the rest of the country did. Um, most of our coverage area, especially in Jefferson County is African-American. Um, but we had, for example, in Beaumont, we had the 100 black men who came together and said, we want to have this protest. How can we work with the city to do this in a way that is healing instead of a way that will cause issues for the city? Um, city of Port Arthur, the mayor actually came out and said, we want to give you a space to do this. This is where the protest will happen. Please wear masks, but come, come with us. And we had um, the Democratic Party chair show up and the mayor and the bunch of city council members. And so I think to their credit, leadership really came together and tried to find a way to um, get ahead of it and say, please come come exercise your first amendment right with us and kind of nipped in the bud problems that may have arisen um, from more uh, spontaneous protests. Um, so we didn't have as many issues there as we saw nationally. Um, as far as covering it was concerned, one of the first times that like I got to go out and see people again it was very exciting. Um, wearing masks and again they did a good job of choosing spaces where there would be enough room for people to spread out. And we were outside and we had masks on, um, but it ended up being I think really good for our community and from a journalism standpoint, a place where we didn't have to worry really at all about being able to cover this very important issue while also staying safe and making sure we weren't causing problems for anyone else. Because I've been to press conferences, like I, I don't go out anywhere else, but there's places that I could have contracted it and didn't want to give it to anyone else. Um, so that's kind of how the protests went. Um, I think one of the things that we have been getting better about is just the ability to find and connect with sources online. Um, I think journalism sometimes struggles with the idea of, is it good or is it hurtful to find sources on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is? Um, but that's where so many people are now. And so being able to find people who are experiencing the repercussions of coronavirus and build a relationship with them in a way, whereas pre-coronavirus, we would go to them and talk to them and trying to figure out how to get the same information that's important for the general public in what would generally seem like a less personable format has been something that I think our staff has really worked on improving. In communities where, um, and I've been lucky enough to visit in Port Arthur and, and attend one of these hearings and, and <laughs> realizing that everybody else in the room probably knew each other or had interacted at one point or another and that I was the real outsider there. Um, 
there's a great value in reporting and developing relationships over time. It's interesting to hear you describe in the middle of this pandemic have to then basically develop these kind of reporting relationships and trust from a distance. Yeah. It's, um, it's an interesting aspect of that. I was, I'm really glad to hear you say also that uh, you felt safe as a reporter, particularly some of the video that we were seeing in other parts of the country where reporters were not treated um, in that way. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that as, as well. And I just want to re- remind people you're listening to COVID calls. We're talking to Caitlin Bain and Jennifer Lazo. And I want to make the sort of turn in the conversation here. So now we're going to layer in another disaster. And these are the ones that are happening in the moment. Caitlin, let me, let me ask you first. Um, I think that Hurricane Laura is as of now meant to be category three, potentially at landfall. And I don't think I have not looked in the last 40 minutes, um, but you're not too far away from what could be um, the, the, the landfall zone. Um, yeah. In Southeast Texas. How, let me ask you first, um, how are people preparing and then how are you preparing? Yeah. So a lot of boarding up windows, going to get supplies, whatever that is, generators, water, food. Um, some people evacuating leaders, trying to remind people that you actually do need to evacuate. Um, that's been a lot of the prep that we've been seeing. Um, I had been prepared to hunker down. (laughs) And then yesterday we got some news that the storm had turned just a little bit that puts the eye. We, Beaumont will likely brush with the Western eyewall. So really increases those wind gusts, which is my biggest concern in the environment that I'm in. Um, So tonight I will be packing and evacuating to Houston. Are you under uh, evacuation? In Texas, yeah. they don't, you are under evacuation. Yeah, uh, all of order. our cover. Do they use the word order in Texas? Yep. The, the, okay, so the count, and how does that work? County judge made that made that order? Yes. Um, the ones that we typically report come from the county judge, but generally the cities will come along and, and issue their own as kind of like okay. standing in solidarity sort of thing. Um, they are mandatory evacuation orders. They're not going to come around and arrest anyone because that puts emergency workers in in danger. But they do say once winds hit 35 miles an hour, we are not coming to get you. Um, So just that understanding that that's that's what a mandatory evacuation means. I remember uh, before Hurricane Harvey made landfall, the governor uh, there very dramatically said everyone should write their social security number and a Sharpie on their arm because we're not coming to get you. I'm not sure that's an effective form of uh, disaster communication, but it was certainly a newsworthy one. Um, it must be because so many things in COVID times are distant. It must, it's a little difficult to find out how people are reacting to those orders and, and what it looks like right now. Mm-hmm. Because what kind of sources do you rely on to find out if people are actually evacuating? A lot on my, at least for me, on my government sources. Um, Mayor Port Arthur has been doing a lot to try to connect with residents. Um, we had some reporters this morning go out to some of the sites that had been set up for individuals who can't evacuate themselves. Um, a lot of those had regulations that people be masked or have their temperatures checked. Um, so those were areas where we knew people would be following social distancing protocol, 
um, as far as reporting is concerned. Uh, and then just watching, watching social media. I hate to continue to say that, but it, it really does. One of the things that was surprising to me when I first moved to Southeast Texas is uh, there are more people on social media here than I think any place I've ever lived. And that has increased tenfold during coronavirus. And it just really is where people are talking mm -hmm. on Facebook and next door. And the number of times I get a email notification about my next door that somebody else has posted to ask everybody else who's evacuating. And so um, really just trying to, trying to watch that. How do you, uh, that's an extraordinary sociological finding. I don't want to get too far away, but just because that's a really interesting thing you just said. Do you have a theory of why that is? Why so many people connect on social media there? Yes. <laughs> um, it is the, the trying to figure out the diplomatic way to say this. Um, it's, it's, there are a lot of very involved people in the area um, involved in city government involved in their neighborhood association, whatever it is. Um, and they just really like Facebook groups. Um, mm -hmm. We have like four Facebook groups for each city because each breakout sect will find each other in that Facebook group and just make their other one. Um, yeah. This is uh, bringing it back to, to Jennifer, uh, like all emergency managers always fascinated with uh, risk communication and how that works. It's interesting to hear Caitlin talk about how communication works there in, in Jefferson County. Um, similar there in Los Angeles? So one of the really big lessons learned that we can actually say learned for once instead of observed uh, from the 2017 and 2018 wildfires was that the state, every agency had their own way of ordering, of doing evacuations, different language, different words that were used. And it meant you could walk from one city to another and have entirely different terminology that was really confusing. Um, and so that has been fixed. This is the exciting news is that we actually do now have statewide guidance on what your words you're supposed to use. Um, and so for all of our wildfire evacuations, we use the same terminology, which is an evacuation warning when we want people to get ready to go. And for anyone who's gonna take longer to leave, has livestock, any reason it'll take a while to leave then. And then an evacuation order is when everyone should leave. Uh, so we have that really consistent terminology now uh, between jurisdictions. And I do think that's helping make it a little bit easier for us to communicate with folks. Um, it's still, as Caitlin was mentioning, we still can't drag people out. Um, it really means that if you leave, you can't get back in. That tends to be what the really big impact is. Um, and so, and we're not, in general, we're not evacuating entire counties, although there are some areas up north where a huge portion of the county is evacuated in some period of time. And so that more consistent terminology is super helpful. And the, one of the other sort of unusual side effects of being activated and doing messaging for both the protests and for uh, COVID is that I think a lot of emergency managers throughout the state and maybe even throughout the country have gotten more com comfortable using their emergency alerting systems. <laughs> They've had something where they actually needed to use them on. They may not have sent any before. Uh, we sent a lot of wireless emergency alerts last year because we had some major fires, but a lot of the emergency managers I know have sent their very first one in the last six months. Um, they may have had that role or responsibility for five years, but now they've actually had a reason to do it. And so that means occasionally you see things get a little bit fuzzy. There was an LA Times story up 
uh, today about some of the challenges they've had up north, but at least we're noticing these challenges and finding them a little bit earlier and people know how to fix them a little bit better. So I think we're getting better at the emergency alerting. It's always a work in progress, but it's that is growing a bit. Have you done one of those? I have done many of them. I have done the fabled 2 a.m. woken up from a dead sleep. Um, the phone goes off. They say yeah. you need to send a wireless emergency alert to alert one of the most expensive neighborhoods in LA right now, to which I stared at my phone and said, is this a drill? <laughs> right. <laughs> and they said, no. I'm like, oh, expletive. Um, oh, and wow. then went running in my pajamas to my living room to send that first alert that I think it evacuated Arnold Schwarzenegger. It evacuated uh, LeBron James, all sorts of people for the Getty fire last year. It was sort of fascinating mm -hmm. to send it and then see all these celebrities be like, I'm awake and evacuating. Like, good, do that. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry for waking you up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I've sent quite a few of them. It is nerve wracking and heart racing every single time. Isn't that amazing though, that you, you also find that influencer effect with that quick follow on. So if they come back on social media quickly, there's many, many other millions of people following them, some small percentage of which are actually in the zone you're trying to reach. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody studied that sort of relationship there, but I know that you know studying social media influencers in the context of risk communication is a hot research area right now. Yeah, I mean, it was, I kept track of it. It felt sort of silly. Uh, like, who did I wake up this morning? But I did see it from my background in learning about risk communication at uh, the University of Delaware of like, these people are the ones I most want to say, I heard something and I took action. Uh, we need the examples of people actually taking good action uh, to help encourage others to do so as well. So Jennifer, just stick with the wildfire situation. I know you're not facing that necessarily in where you are, but to maybe speak a little bit to what you're seeing statewide. You know, Caitlin was talking about people who may not be able to evacuate. And I know you study um, disabled populations and, and some of these issues around sheltering or evacuation. What are they facing right now in Northern California with that? It's really challenging. Um, the some of these areas that are burning have a pretty high number of nursing home or assisted living facilities and getting those groups moving, especially if they have an active outbreak happening in them, is incredibly challenging. First, alerting them as early as possible and then actually getting them in vehicles that will be safe where a driver can get them somewhere safe and then housing them somewhere safe. It's always better to take one of those facilities and transfer them to a like facility but right now, the last thing you want to do is take two groups of vulnerable folks with medical conditions and combine them. Um, so it makes it into a really complicated situation. And unfortunately, we know from wildfire evacuations that the people who are most likely to perish during a wildfire are people who are older or people with disabilities by a lot. We've seen that in the campfire and in the fires of this year, unfortunately, as well, too. There's been four deaths, um, which is 
all, every death is tragic from wildfires, but it's actually a lot less than some of the fires we've seen in previous years. So that is, uh, it's interesting. I think that's because a lot of these fires are not particularly fast moving. They're quickly growing, mm-hmm. but they're not necessarily rolling along um, engulfing because they're not wind driven yet. Um, those fires are coming in a month. Um, and that will make things a lot more complicated. But there's definitely differential impacts on communities and trying to get everybody as prepared as we can to move rapidly and then have a safe place for them to go when they get there. The big focus on sheltering here is to try to put people into as few, a few people into congregate locations as possible. So when we can get people into hotel rooms, when we can get them into even empty college dormitories, uh, that's one of the things that we're looking at of ways of being able mm-hmm. to separate families so that they don't have to be with each other. Those are options we're definitely looking at right now. We have no yeah. in-person school right now, so we actually do have space. We have uh-huh. lots of big space we can spread out. But there was sort of an effort in the last several years of like, move to mega shelters. Mega shelters are so much easier to manage, so much yeah. easier to run. Everything's in one place. You don't have to spread out. And now we've moved uh, completely yeah. in the other direction of a small, a lot of tiny little shelters, as many as possible so that you can keep people spread out. Yeah. Move to mega shelters. There was, and there was one person there in the room with pandemic training and they said, maybe let's, <laughs> let's slow down on that, that approach a little bit. And then food. I mean, we've had, we've always had problems in shelters with illness spreading, especially food-based illness and norovirus is infamous in disaster shelters. Mm -hmm. I have seen it happen multiple times. It happened several times in the campfire. It was a huge Mm -hmm. issue there uh, two years ago. And so this has been a thing that I think hopefully we'll we'll keep these lessons of keeping shelters safer environments and cleaner environments uh, forward because this has been an ongoing issue. Just reminding people you're listening to COVID calls with Caitlin Bain and Jennifer Lazo, and still got a few minutes left. Both of them have to leave on time today, so we're gonna we're gonna finish on time. But you can still get a question in if you put it in YouTube live chat. Caitlin, um, I want to ask you a question I've asked you multiple times since I've known you and had the benefit of your wisdom, which is that um, disasters it, where you are, to me, are they become almost inseparable over time. And when I first visited Port Arthur and I asked, um, could you show me some places that are still recovering from Hurricane Harvey? And you you were able to do that. You said, but, you know, pay attention. To the, they may still be recovering from other previous storms as well. I think people may not realize how long it takes to really recover. I'm just wondering your thoughts right now, staring um, at that weather map and thinking about communities uh, in your coverage area that are still not past um, the many different disasters that you've that you've covered in these last couple of years what are how are you thinking about what are they what are they doing to prepare can you tell us a little bit about them right now yeah um, I'll start with I think I think one of the things that benefits us that um, is that so many people have storm to draw on so when we started talking about Laura people were like is this well, this is a bad example because nobody was living during this, but they'll be like, this is like the storm of 1900 that hit Galveston. Is this going to be like, will this be like Rita? Will this be like Harvey? Listing all of these examples. And when we get close enough and are able to say, this storm is looking like Rita, people whose power was out for a month, that's the point that they're like, oh, I need to go. Um, so having that wealth of knowledge of now quite a few different types of storms um, gives people knowledge to draw on to 
I think you make better risk assessments about should is it in their best interest to evacuate? Because we're Texas and we don't like to be told what to do. Um, so I think, think we benefit from that. Um, but I I don't cover a lot of our wind insurance conversations that is covered by Jacob but He talks to me a lot about them because I find them fascinating and he understands it better than I do. Um, and I have been thinking through coverage of this storm that is expected to be a windstorm about the number of issues constantly on our state house's discussion that will impact the people who live here for a very long time. And so the people who can't afford windstorm insurance, that likely their house will be severely damaged or destroyed by the storm, but maybe they bought flood insurance because it was destroyed by Harvey. And so they have had this new expense and but they didn't get the right one. And so then they're back at square one and have to pay to rebuild their home. And do they have the money for that? Um, That's one of the things that has been top of mind as we have moved forward. And I know that there in in Beaumont uh, with Harvey, with the rain event that happened there, there so much water that there were also sort of deficiencies in the pumping system and everything that (laughs) Was yeah. uh, and I was using deficiency very lightly. People can look up online and see uh, what that looked like there at that time. Have they addressed those <laughs> issues? Um, no. They had been in a fight back and forth about whether or not they should try to use money to get another raw water pump station, so drawing more water from the Natchez River, so there's not one point of failure. Then after we were informed about how grant money could be used, then the idea was, well, we'll just build a whole nother, a whole nother plant on the other side of town. So if one gets one, we'll have another one, which is great, but we are going into another storm and we still don't have a resiliency. Um, and so the officials have said that they're confident. They have done um, maintenance on, on all of the, all of the parts that can be maintained. But the fact of the matter is, is if you get that, much water, there's very little that can be done. And our government systems aren't set up in such a way that there is enough revenue coming in to take on projects that could take on that much water. Um, so the short answer is no, but it, then you get into a philosophical, do we, do we fix more things or do we fix one thing as best as possible? Right. Let me, um, we're just up on time. I'm gonna just give the last uh, question. It looks like we've got a thunderstorm rolling in where I am too. The, the power is surging. Uh, so if I, if I lose you all, thank you for your time on COVID calls today. Jennifer, I am gonna try to sneak this last question in. And it's a question I've asked several guests on COVID calls and it's about stamina. Um, 131 days, you said, but, but also stamina in the community more more generally, um, how are people keeping going in the midst of this sort of heightened, constant level of heightened concern? Are there, there must, you must be learning things also about people's capacity to cope with high levels of stress. Yeah, it's been pretty incredible to watch uh, the folks in here, but also just every, every part of our community. One of the strange things about being in this room, I've been in here from the start. And so, I know this group of people behind me, 
very, very, very well. We are a family that no one ever expected that will probably live on in city infamy for years to come. Um, but it also means I'm really disconnected except for a few of my family members to the experience of being at home and being stuck. I sort of have the opposite of experience of being at work at all times forever. And that is where my brain is. And so I think that's true of a lot of emergency managers. They haven't necessarily gotten a chance to take a breath, especially because usually for us, June, July might be when things get a little bit more chill, but that was when our cases started skyrocketing again. And so that is hard. And when I look at the people of LA, they're doing as well as they can. They're being as patient with us as they can, uh, but it's starting to get really old and this fall may be really rough. And so we're uh, looking at what we can do to bring some levity, to bring some fun. We did a thing in here every Friday, we have a theme and we wear something for the theme. So we've had Hawaiian shirt day, we've had sports teams, we've had all of that, just something to keep it, mm -hmm. make it possible for you to smile and take a silly picture or something like that at the end of it. And that mental health stuff, we've done chair yoga sessions, all of that good stuff to try and keep sane. And we try to encourage that to the communities that we work with too, because you have to go outside, but when it's smoky outside, yeah. Then you can't go outside again. I mean, it just it compounds and compounds and compounds, and it gets really hard. And I do have to drop off now. But if anyone okay. has any other questions, I'm on Twitter. I'm really easy to find. So feel free to come find me there. Jennifer Lazo, thank you so much for what you're doing and for your time today. Thanks for being on COVID calls. And Caitlin, just to thank you uh, once again and um, be safe in your in your driving and your evacuation. And we will also be wanting to follow you on Twitter. Could you just um, tell us how we find your reporting and how we can be on social media with you in these? Uh... My Twitter handle is super easy. It's just at Caitlin Bain. Um, I work for the Beaumont Enterprise, so you can also follow them on Twitter. Um, and our newspaper does not currently have a paywall. I don't know if I should advertise that. So any content you want to read from us about what's going on, you can find on our website for free. Okay, and just to make sure everybody um, knows to check out the Beaumont Enterprise and Caitlin Bain's reporting, it's going to be, it's always important and going to be especially important in the coming weeks. Thanks again, Caitlin, and safe travels. Thank you. Okay, everybody, thanks for joining us on COVID Calls, and uh, check us out tomorrow, 5 o'clock, every day, 5 o'clock Eastern time. Tomorrow we'll continue our discussion of education and the return to campus. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about special education with Dr. Simon Tan. Until then, stay healthy and we'll see you tomorrow at 5 p.m. Thanks.